Hi, this is Dr. Timothy Bartell with the Poetry Corner podcast at the St. Constantine School. I'm excited because we're now in our second episode of our centenary celebration, perhaps, of Proofrock and Other Observations, the 1917 bombshell grenade dropped into modern poetry collection of T.S. Eliot. As I said in our last podcast, it's hard to overestimate the importance of Proof Rock. Proof Rock is the collection that changes poetry and that every poet after Eliot kind of wishes they, they had. Proof Rock begins with a long poem called the Love Song of J. Alfred Proof Rock. It's the sort of title poem that just, as we talked about last time, shows that Eliot can write in strict meter, in rhyme, in beautiful language, but in a way that's slightly different than poetry had been written before, especially when it comes to anxiety and unnaturalness and fragmentation in both imagery and in mood. I want to now look at a poem that is toward the middle of Proofrock and Other Observations. Proofrock and Other Observations is 12 poems long, and that's kind of short for a poetry collection. These days, we would consider that a chapbook. And one of the things that I really admire about Eliot is his ability to put out really short poetry collections. In fact, uh, when he puts out The Wasteland, there's only five poems in it. It's, it's barely 30 pages with notes, but perhaps even by their shortness, called attention to the importance of the poem. Some people thought that Eliot, and I think I think this too, some people thought that Eliot was a little self-important, that Eliot, in fact, should have published a little more and should have been a little less anxious and uh, worried about how important his poetry was. I point you to biographies of Eliot to explore Eliot's own uh, worries, anxieties, and uh, psychosomatic problems. Uh, there are many theories about them. Uh, I want to get to his poetry, though. Let's not psychoanalyze the man. Or if we psychoanalyze the man, let us do it uh, by reading his poetry. Of course, poetry is not for psychoanalysis. But here's an important thing about El Eliot is writing in an age when psychoanalysis is being invented. And this idea of anxiety especially of there being syndromes and unconscious motivations in human beings that need to be sussed out through language. These were ideas that were coming into popular culture and popular consciousness when Eliot was writing. And so we can't totally discount questions of psychoanalysis. Let's look at Preludes, this poem toward the middle of Proofrock and Other Observations, and see what we can see. Here's Preludes. One. The winter evening settles down with smell of steaks in passageways. Six o'clock. The burnt-out ends of smoky days. And now a gusty shower wraps the grimy scraps of withered leaves about your feet and newspapers from vacant lots. The showers beat on broken blinds and chimney pots, and at the corner of the street, a lonely cab horse steams and stamps, and then the lighting of the lamps. 2. The morning comes to consciousness of faint stale smells of beer from the sawdust-trampled street, 
with all its muddy feet that press to early coffee stands. With the other masquerades that time resumes, one thinks of all the hands that are raising dingy shades in a thousand furnished rooms. 3. You tossed a blanket from the bed. You lay upon your back and waited. You doze and watch the night revealing a thousand sordid images of which your soul was constituted. They flickered against the ceiling. And when all the world came back and the light crept up between the shutters, you heard the sparrows in the gutters. You had such a vision of the street as the street hardly understands, sitting along the bed's edge where you curled the papers from your hair or clasped the yellow soles of feet in the palms of both soiled hands. Four. His soul stretched tight across the skies that fade behind a city block, or trampled by insistent feet at four and five and six o'clock, and short square fingers stuffing pipes, and evening newspapers and eyes, assured of certain certainties, the conscience of a blackened street, impatient to assume the world. I am moved by fancies that are curled, around these images and cling, the notion of some infinitely gentle, infinitely suffering thing. Wipe your hand across your mouth and laugh. The worlds revolve like ancient women gathering fuel in vacant lots. Eliot says that he wrote these as kind of four separate poems, but in, in a similar style. He called them his four preludes early on. And he wrote them in Massachusetts, in Cambridge at Harvard, where he was going to school and then going to grad school after he had studied abroad for a while. Similar to Proof Rock, these are poems written in a tradition, the prelude, which we associate with, with calmness, with joy, which maybe uh, with demonstrations of the poet's ability to describe natural scenes in pleasing and comforting and maybe even sublime ways. But these preludes are different. These preludes are 20th century preludes. Let's look at the first one and talk a little bit about form. The winter evening settles down with smell of stakes in passageways, six o'clock. Those are the first three lines. The winter evening settles down with smell of steak in passageways. Those are two fantastic lines of unrhymed iambic tetrameter. Iambic tetrameter, of course, is the line that is very much associated with the hymn tradition, usually the first and third lines of the hymn quatrain are iambic tetrameter, but also, as Eliot would have known well growing up in St. Louis, Missouri, Iambic tetrameter was also a line that was used a lot by American poets telling stories in ballads. Trochaic tetrameter, which is sort of an inverse of iambic tetrameter, was what Longfellow wrote The Song of Hiawatha in, a poem of thousands and thousands and thousands of lines dramatizing Native American myth and legend. So in using the winter evening settles down with smell of stakes and passageways, he's once again being very conventional. If we want to go further back than Longfellow, if we think of 
William Wordsworth's famous poem about daffodils, my heart leaps up when I behold, is the first line. Da 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 da. It's a meter of joy at seeing the world. My heart dances with the daffodils, uh, he says at the end of that poem. It might even feel a little trite, but uh, Elliot knows what he's doing. The winter evening settles down with smells of what? Smells of um, beauteous flowers, smells of her perfume. No, smells of steaks. What does a steak smell like? Right, steak is braised, oily, smoky. I mean, it makes me feel hungry. I'm recording this just before lunchtime. But the smell of steaks really, really places us in a very interesting context. We're not in a place of beauty and higher thoughts. We're in a visceral, hungry place. Also maybe in a place that's a little dingy and oily. If a passageway smells like steaks, that makes me think of a back alley behind a tavern or an inn or a restaurant. This is a place that is near food but is a little dingy for it. The third line, I I love this third line. It reminds me a little bit of the the first and uh, fourth lines in J. Alfred Prufrock. It's a short line that's now in weird relation to two longer lines. The winter evening settles down with smells of steak and passageways. Six o'clock. Six o'clock is seriously three syllables. If we had to give it a name of a meter, it would be dimeter because it has two stressed syllables. But it's actually missing an unstressed syllable that would go at the beginning to make it iambic dimeter or at the end to make it trochaic dimeter. So this is a bold line, six o'clock. That is a real, real short line. The only other English poet I can think of who plays around with three syllable dimeter lines is in fact our friend William Shakespeare. When in A Midsummer Night's Dream, Oberon, King of Fairies, asks Puck, his little fairy servant, where he's been, Puck says, over hill, over dale. Those are two lines. Over hill, end of line. Over dale, end of line. Six o'clock. I know these are so short, and it might seem like a stretch to say, ah, he's thinking of Puck, but Eliot is one of our most well-read poets. Eliot says in Tradition in the Individual Talent, a later essay that he's going to write a couple of years after Preludes, he says, to be a mature poet, one must hold within oneself all the literature of Europe from Homer to the present day within oneself as one writes. So if Eliot is writing a line of trochaic dimeter missing a last unstressed syllable, and if Shakespeare wrote it too, I'm going to bet that he was thinking about it. If you can think of another poet who plays with trochaic dimeter missing a final unstressed syllable, let me know and we can argue about who's influencing who. The winter evening settles down with smell of steaks in passageways, six o'clock, the burnt out ends of smoky days, and now a gusty shower wraps the grimy scraps. Okay, those are the first six lines. So we had two lines of iambic tetrameter followed by a line of trochaic dimeter. And now again, we have the burnt out ends of smoky days and now a gusty shower wraps. Wonderful, two more perfect lines of iambic tetrameter. And then the grimy scraps. Ah, interesting. So this moves to iambic dimeter. It starts with an unstressed syllable, the grimy scraps. Interesting. What's added is not 
a trochaic unstressed syllable, but an iambic unstressed syllable, of withered leaves about your feet and newspapers from vacant lots, the showers beat. Ah, now a very strict pattern is starting. We have two lines of iambic tetrameter followed by a line of dimeter, two lines of iambic tetrameter followed by a line of dimeter, two lines of iambic tetrameter followed by a line of dimeter. This is a strict pattern. If anyone ever tells you T.S. Eliot writes in free verse, he didn't care about meter. Ah, I'm sorry, point them to preludes and say, in fact, his meter is so strict. He even follows this odd pattern that it seems like he doesn't need to follow, but he's set this rule for himself for some reason, and he's following it. On broken blinds and chimney pots, and at the corner of the street, a lonely cab horse steams and stamps. Oh no, he broke it. We, we had just said, oh, look how formal he is. And after this third three-line section of two lines of iambic tetrameter, one of iambic dimeter, he gives us three lines of iambic tetrameter. On broken blinds and chimney pots, and at the corner of the street, a lonely cab horse steams and stamps. That's the end of the stanza. So maybe we could say it's traditional to have the last line of a stanza be a little different. Spencer ends his iambic pentameter stanzas with a line of iambic hexameter in the nine-line Spencerian stanza. So, okay, there's precedent for this. But then oh, there's this wonderful thing that happens at the end of this first stanza in Prelude 1. And then there's a second stanza that's only one line long. And it's, once again, iambic tetrameter. And then the lighting of the lamps. And that lamps beautifully rhymes, almost, almost cheesily rhymes with the lonely cab horse steams and stamps. One of the reasons I love Prelude 1 is the whole time I feel oily, but kind of in a nice, grimy, you know, I'm walking down the street in an old part of town and uh, I've just had a good dinner and I can still smell my dinner in my mustache and uh, coming from all the steaming alleyways beside me. Of course, this is 1917 when it's published in Proof Rock and Other Observations and it was written in 1910 actually, uh, originally. So this is an earlier time than I'm thinking of. But I think this is a very, is a very middle and lower class experience, walking around town in the sort of oily, steamy part. The withered leaves about your feet and newspapers from vacant lots. There's this idea that all the leftover detritus, all, all the stuff from the day, all the stuff like leaves that used to be in natural beauty on the trees, all the stuff like newspapers that used to inform the public as they go to work in the morning, all of those are now on the ground, kind of oiled and stained, but not necessarily in a tragic way, in just kind of a natural way. This is the way of things. The alleys smell like steak. The newspapers get trampled. Everything becomes a little, a little sooty and grimy. And this is what Eliot really is the poet of in his early career. He's the poet of the middle and lower class grime and everyday, almost totally used or totally used up artifacts of life. But there's a feeling that he kind of loves them, right? And then the lighting of the lamps is a beautiful, I find, stanza slash line. All of these things are in the dusk, and all of these things might seem sad, but then there's this illumination that takes place. It's not an illumination of someone realizing, 
but I'm in love, or an illumination of realizing, oh, but there is a God. It's just the lighting of the lamps. It's a very, it's a very common thing. In fact, we talked about oiliness. These lamps might be oil lamps, but it illumines everything. All the things we just saw, the steam, the grime, the crumpled leaves, the crumpled newspapers, all of them are going to be illumined by this light. And if you will allow me to wax perhaps a little cheesy for a moment, Eliot himself is that lamp that illumines for us in his poetry these images. There's more to talk about in Preludes, just like there was more to talk about in the love song of G. Alfred Prufrock in our last discussion. But I think Prelude shows us that Eliot can continue and expand his approach to writing descriptions of the evening and of the American Eastern city in a way that kind of shows us his range. J. Alfred Prufrock is spoken in the voice of a character. It, it can be read, I think, as a dramatic monologue uh, in the way that some of um, Tennyson's best poems, like Ulysses, are dramatic monologues. Preludes is not a dramatic monologue. This is much more a a just third-person poetic speaker giving us an image of life. There will be more to talk about in future podcasts about Prufrock and other observations. I hope through these last two podcasts, though, we're starting to see both the difference and the appeal of Eliot in relation to his predecessors. And hopefully meditating on the poems in Prufrock and other observations and pulling them out again, even though they're 100 years old, can help preserve them as a moment in poetry where someone really did something new, but didn't lose the traditions that undergirded them, that didn't kick out from under their feet the giants whose shoulders they stood on. Eliot is a paradox in this regard. He's an innovator who loves, loves, loves tradition. And at our best, I think, when we write, when we make, when we live, we need tradition behind us to have our identities, to have our purposes, to discern our ends and our places within our communities and within our world. But our lives are always new every moment in the sense that every day we have the opportunity to, to make choices, and those are real, original, creative choices. C.S. Lewis talks about originality as the quality of having truly originated within the choosing self. Can poetry that is traditional and innovative help us live as traditional and innovative beings? I hope so. This has been the Poetry Corner Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell.